Welcome to Unveiling Apocalypse, a podcast about the Book of Revelation. Well, welcome everyone to another exciting episode. And my guest today is Professor Michael Gorman, who has written fairly extensively across the New Testament canon, actually. And it looked like most of your work began in Paul, but you have spent a bit of time in Revelation as well. And you are a Methodist, uh, you understand, and you're teaching at St. Mary's, which is a Catholic institution uh, in the United States. Tell us a bit more about yourself, Michael. Right. Well, first of all, uh, Ewan, thank you so much for this invitation. I'm, I'm glad to be on your podcast, and um, I'm very happy that you, you're doing this because people need to talk about and hear about the Book of Revelation. I am, as you mentioned, um, a Methodist teaching in a Catholic seminary, but it's an un unusual Catholic seminary. It's the only one in the world, as far as we know, that also has an ecumenical division. So we're sort of like two theological schools in one, a Catholic seminary by day and, and non-denominational, interdenominational, ecumenical, whatever you want to call it, uh, theological school, primarily in the evening, although not exclusively. And I've been teaching in, in both divisions for going on 30 years and uh, have been very happy here. It's been a good, a good home. And uh, as you said, I, I've had lots of opportunities to do research and writing. And the book of Revelation is a, a book that I've probably taught as a subject about 15 times in my 30 years. So about every other year in one division or the other. Uh, so in addition to writing, of course, I do a lot of teaching, obviously. Yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. So you mentioned in the foreword to your book, um, Reading Re Revelation Responsibly, which, by the way, is one of the books I recommend to everyone who asks me about the book of Revelation. Thank you. But you do mention that you, you have been living with and reading and engaging with the text for quite a long time. Could you tell us a little bit about what sparked your interest in it and, and what got you there, I suppose? Well, this will reveal my age, but I was, I was brought up through the church youth group during the age in which Hal Lindsey was very popular. So he's sort of the Tim LaHaye type figure of a previous generation. And I can remember during my, probably my junior year in high school, being uh, taught, if that's the right word, or, or being exposed to his type of approach to the book of Revelation and being frankly a little bit frightened by it. No alternative was, at least at the immediate time, no alternative view was was put forward. Then I went off to college and um, happened to have a, somebody on my floor who was um, not only a Revelation fanatic, but I don't know that what the exact word is anymore, but he was a survivalist. I think that's probably still a, a word that could be understood, who would go out in the woods on weekends and you know try to survive in case the, the coming um, so-called apocalypse would happen and, and he'd have to live off the land, so to speak. So yeah, so I mean that th those two things got me got me quite frightened actually, and um, had a pretty serious reaction against them, and wanted to come back to the Book of Revelation someday. So when I when I finally went off to seminary to divinity school, and was privileged to go to Princeton, where the well-known professor Bruce Medsker, the translator of the head of the translation co committee of the New Revised Standard Bible, was teaching, and he had a course on on the Book of Revelation, which I was anxious to take. And it opened my eyes, exposed me to new ideas. His final, he, I arrived near the end of his teaching career. And the last course that he taught was the book of Revelation. And I was privileged to be his teaching assistant for that course. 
his lectures for that course eventually became a small book called um, Breaking the Code. Sorry, Breaking the Code. And that was recently redone by Professor David De Silva of Ashland Seminary, who's also written quite a bit on, on Revelation. Mm, okay. It's interesting because many of the people I've interviewed have the same story or very similar stories. We all come to this experience of shock and awe, if you like. Right. And, and that's why we come to Revelation, because someone's, you know, shown us something or, or said something that, that makes us quite concerned. And so we think, surely that can't be the case. And we come and we delve more deeply into the text. And well, we all, I think many of us who end up in scholarship discover something quite different about it. So what, what have you discovered? I think that my early exposure to a more academic, but still very spiritually rich and theologically rich approach in the, in the work of Bruce Metzger got me to see Revelation as, first of all, real piece of writing for the first century churches. And also um, got me to see a little bit of the poetry and symbolism in ways I would have never imagined before. But it took my I, interesting, I think this may be true for a lot of people. It actually took me the time of teaching Revelation myself to come to grips with how I wanted to approach it. And even in the days where I was doing this work with him in seminary and graduate school, uh, there wasn't a real political angle given in the book of Revelation. I do remember one important lecture that he gave. He said, I remember, I can almost quote him word for word. He said, if you read, if you want a social gospel from the New Testament, read Revelation 17 and 18, something like that. And that stuck with me that there was a, a real, if you will, social dimension, justice dimension to the book of Revelation. But I didn't hear much about politics. And I didn't he really hear much about mission and the book of Revelation. So my own take on Revelation has evolved over the years to be kind of hybrid of an academic approach, which is also quite spiritual, theological, and even missional. And I've tried to weave those together as, as I do also for the other New Testament writings. And it's really interesting that you, you do say that because I think one charge that, is, that can be leveled at academics in particular is that we lack a spiritual dimension to our work. Um, so it's very encouraging to hear you say that that has been an element, a strong element of what you do, because I think it is well, one thing I've discovered in doing this podcast and interviewing many people is that we are all devoted to the text right. and to the spirituality within the text. And, and I think you, you can't really step beyond that in, in how we read it. So, no, it's very encouraging. So you mentioned a, a few interesting uh, words there, including, you know, politics and mission. Would you care to uh, expand on either of those? Yeah, um... But let me backtrack if I could and, and mention the, the word spirituality for a moment, if you don't mind, before yeah, we yeah. get to the Part of the reason for that is some of your listeners may have heard the name Eugene Peterson. He is most known around the world, I suppose, for his paraphrase of the Bible, the message. But Eugene Peterson was a very deeply spiritual pastor and professor here in the States. And he actually taught at our institution when he was a pastor in the area. Mm -hmm. And he was, the, he was my predecessor in teaching the book of Revelation. So he preached on the book of Revelation at his church and taught a course on Revelation at our institution in the ecumenical division. And I was profoundly moved, not so much, I didn't ever 
sitting on his class. He, he left before I joined the faculty. But I, I was really moved by his book, Reversed Thunder, which I think is one of the more powerful symbolic interpretations or spiritual interpretations, if you will, of the book of Revelation. So that had a big impact on me. I've been using that in my, as a text in my courses for 20 years or so or more, perhaps. But even in that book, Eugene Peterson wasn't a hyper um, sensitive to political matters, but he did make it quite clear that you can't separate spirituality and politics mm -hmm. and that revelation doesn't. Spirituality of revelation is a political spirituality in the sense it's about embodying the gospel in the world and not, not giving in to the demands of uh, the lordship, supposed lordship of, of Caesar and all that goes along with that. Mm -hmm. So to me then a spiritual reading of revelation means inherently a political reading it means taking the claims of the gospel that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King, whatever particular image we want to use from the gospels and, and the other New Testament writings, that life is on the line. One's living of that is a very serious matter in the book of Revelation. That's something I think that comes out quite strongly in your work that I don't think you articulate it in, in those exact words, but there is a clear sense in which politics and spirituality are different facets of the same coin if, if you like and yeah. there's a, a deep important engagement with both of those things as part of being a or to use your phrase a responsible reader yes no i i, I quite agree um if i can go back to one of the terms you mentioned and, and make it a, is it if there's such a thing as a three-sided coin i would want to put spirituality and politics and mission together mm -hmm. not that we're going to as the church be the agent of bringing in the kingdom of God, but to bear witness to an alternative kingdom, an alternative Lord, that seems to me to, to be the call of the New Testament and particularly the call of the book of Revelation. So that uh, when we, as we bear witness to that, we're inviting people, if you will, to join a, a new way of, of being in the world, a new way of, um, of being human, a new way of, of, of being political, a new way of being a, a presence in the world. And Come, come and join the party, so to speak. Not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or the Green Party, but for lack of a better term, join the Jesus Party. And that's quite a, a complex thing in, in because I suppose normal, well, maybe not normal, but many conceptions of mission, at least at the, the popular level, uh, you know, go out and save the world so that they can avoid death by fire in the lake or, or something. So what you are yeah. suggesting then is that if we add in these dimensions to our conception of mission, there's a strong emphasis on justice in, in different, many different ways that has to be expressed, expressed through our spirituality. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the really interesting things about the book of Revelation is how it ends. I mean, it, it not only concludes the New Testament, but it concludes the whole canon, creation and new creation. And the, the beautiful image of tree or trees for the healing of the nations that inspires me and i think a lot of other people these days to to view our our task as christians as modeling that if you will multinational vision of the church and to to, to think that we find for instance in chapter 7 and so forth but also then in, in chapters 21 and 22 this vision of a, a multi-ethnic community 
still in need of healing. You know, the healing of the nations goes on. That was a that was kind of a mind-blowing revelation for me once I realized that that was the language and the image of the very end of the book. And so we get to participate in the foreshadowing of that or the foretaste, the prefiguring of that in, in the present. At least I think we do. Let me ask you this and sort of coming out of that then, one of the difficulties I often find myself struggling with is the call, the demand almost that John has within Revelation for exclusivity alongside this sort of deeply missional, all-embracing theology that we also see that you've just talked about. How, how do we balance that, do you think? Yeah, um, I, I may have less of a problem with exclusivity than, than I should, or maybe that others do. I, I think that the, the movement of, if you will, the narrative of scripture is, is toward a greater and greater inclusive reality that, that not just Israel, but the Gentiles, not just the Mediterranean basin, but beyond, not just, you know, Christians of European descent, but Asians and, and Africans and, and everybody gets to be part of this. But there's also a theme in, in scripture that I, I don't think is lost, obviously, in the book of Revelation, which is the theme of, of, God's, um, of God's judgment. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm at least able to hold those two together. However, to your point, one of the interesting things about chapters 21 and 22, even though there's been this kind of judgment on Babylon, there is still the language not only of healing of the nations, but th th there's going to be this influx into the... Into the um, into the new heavens and new earth. And it's almost like what was apparently closing and getting narrower and narrower now broadens. I, I see you nodding in, in, in some agreement. So, I mean, maybe that's part of John's, if you will, rhetorical strategy to call the church and make, it, make the church realize, like Jesus says in the gospels, there's a narrow way here, folks, but at the end of the day, God's will is, is much broader than might be thought if we simply hear the words, there's, you know, the, the road is narrow, so to speak. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense or not, but maybe I need to struggle with that a bit more. But I do, when I, I taught for a, uh, a semester at Duke Divinity School, and I had a student who would come in and was absolutely dying to prove that Revelation was the universalist theological document in the New Testament. And so he, he wrote his paper on that. He never did convince himself fully, but he was he was sensing what you're talking about, I think, and and also sensing what we see at the at the end of the book. Well, and and there's you know that very odd little line about the kings of the earth continuing continuing to bring their glory and splendor into the right into the city, right. and it's like, well, I thought they were gone, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is, it is puzzling, but maybe maybe it's the kind of theological open door to say that. If, even in God's judgment, God doesn't give up on anybody. Mm. Perhaps that's that's what's implied in that. But I, yeah, yeah, there there are very potentially large ramifications, and and I think it, it it's a, a call for us to really challenge many of the assumptions that we we hold on to very tightly, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Now let me let me angle a, a little away from that because. One of the interesting issues um, that comes out of this holding on to things tightly is a particular reading of Revelation that we do see 
reasonably prevalent, especially in sort of popular culture and society. And your one of your, well, the title of your book is Reading Revelation Responsibly. And so, of course, you are an advocate for a particular approach or strategy to reading the text. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. In the opening chapters of the book, I, I talk a little bit about some really basic things like what kind of literature are we reading here? And if we understand the nature of early Jewish and early Christian apocalyptic literature, we'll know that it is highly symbolic. And we have to be careful not to look for one-to-one -one correspondences either within the first century context or even more especially between the first century context and let's say the 20th or 21st century context. Um, and, and then related to that, the symbolism, I like to, and I borrowed this, it's not my own original idea. I like to think of the book of Revelation as a series of political cartoons. What I often ask my students, this may not make complete sense in the Australian context, but uh, in the American context, it does. If in 500 years, someone discovered a newspaper from the 21st century that had a political cartoon with um, an elephant and a donkey, which so, so symbolized the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. And if those that political cartoon had those figures talking, think how what a bizarre conclusion it would be in 500 years to say, wow, back in the, the, that day, they had talking donkeys and talking elephants, which is, of course, ludicrous. And I think often what, what happens in, in neglecting the political cartoonish nature of Revelation, the symbolic nature of Revelation, people get caught up in those one-to-one -one correspondences that just completely miss the boat. So I do talk a lot about those kinds of things. I also want to make sure that readers understand that we are reading um, a book that was intended to be understood and to be read, if you will, both in its immediate context, but also beyond that. I mean, seven churches are addressed. That's not that's not simply because there were only seven churches in, in Asia Minor at the time. It's symbolic for the church universal. And I would say for the church beyond the limits of, of space then and time then, but to include later times. So if that's the case, the, the book of Revelation has to speak both to its first century context and to the later context. And, and that's where people get hung up. They either say, well, let's, let's get rid of all these later speculations and just read it as a first century historical document, or they get caught up in these, oh, Israel's gone to war again. It must be the fulfillment of, you know, X prophecy in chapter six, or, or Exxon has an oil spill, and that's obviously, you know, some other judgment scene or, or whatever. Or <laughs> when our president, Ronald Reagan, retired from office, he moved into a house with the house number 666. Well, you can imagine what that did to people especially since his name was Ronald Wilson Reagan, six letters, six letters, six letters. This is the kind of nonsense that the first couple of chapters tried to dispel and say, Let, let's read this for the kind of literature it is and with the kind of ultimate purposes that it has. And one of the scary things is that this type of, I think you call it sloppy interpretation actually, <laughs> um, is, is quite common. And, and how do we how do we work beyond that? How do we challenge that, if you like, and, and help people to move away from this? Yeah. 
Well, obviously, podcasts like this help, I hope. Um, Hopefully. Yes. And those of us who are called to teach, and that includes preach, need to learn how to read this book in a, in a helpful, spiritual, political, missional, theologically responsible way, and then to pass it on. I've, over the years, facilitated Bible studies that go on sometimes for months on this book. And I think people leave at the end realizing this is something that they don't have to be afraid of, that they can embrace. Of course, that's at the, if you will, at the lay level. I've had the privilege of preaching through parts of Revelation with my pastor. I'm not a pastor myself, but uh, my then pastor and I preached through the seven uh, messages to the churches and had a great old time with that. I lead trips to that part of the world to follow in the footsteps of Paul and John. And that's always an eye-opening experience for people, lay people, ministers, and so forth. So there's a lot of ways that we need to teach. And um, just to use political language again, I suppose the trickle-down effect or economic language, we hope that this makes it from the professoriate to the to the pulpit, to the pew, so to speak. And um, that's partly why I teach these courses. And I'm sure that's why you do too. Well, I think it is a common thread, isn't it? That we are passionate about seeing responsible reading of the text. I'm curious about um, the trips, actually. You, you, you do mention that um, as well. And do you find that people who go on these trips really come away with a, a fresh perspective on the text, do you think? I do. I definitely do. When I, my first trip to Turkey was more than 20 years ago, and I had very low expectations. I was blown away by the impact. It was similar, similar to the impact I had had a couple years, it, I had experienced a couple years earlier when I went to Israel, which I had, again, I had low expectations. I thought people blew it, blew it out of proportion what it would do to them spiritually, academically, or whatever. But my students and others who have come on these trips, I've led about 10 of them to Turkey, Greece, and Italy. Everybody comes away with a wholly different appreciation of the built environment, of the geography, of the reality of things like slavery and economic disparity and uh, imperial presence and all these uh, and and idolatry and all the other things that we associate with with that time period, and and I I urge this on. I know it's not possible for everybody, but I urge this on my colleagues to go. I remember um, the late Jimmy Dunn didn't make it to that part of the world until he was in his 60s. He had, he had already done all of his work. Tom Wright, good friend Tom Wright, was in his 50s when he made it to Corinth, I believe. Uh, maybe even later than that. I was in my I was in my 40s. I wish I had done it in my 20s, but of course, with little children and financial debt and all those things, it's almost impossible. But yeah, it certainly it makes a it makes a huge difference. And these these uh, impressions really affect the way people read the Bible, teach the Bible, preach from the Bible. And is it to do with the embodiment, like you, you know, I, I, it's hard. It's it's something that is very intangible and hard to pin down, isn't it? It is. My first interview for a New Testament teaching job, the question, one of the questions that they asked me was, this is many years ago. Um, what textbook would you use for a New Testament survey class? 
And the answer I gave was the one with the best pictures. That, that got a very almost scowling laugh from the interviewers and I did not get the job. I'm sure there were other reasons why I didn't get the job. But if you asked me today the same question, I would give you the same answer. I mean, obviously I want a good text, uh, but I want people to, this is, scripture is not simply about ideas. It's about real life. And, you know, it's about imagining, reading scripture well is about imagining what it would what it, what it be like to be this kind of person or this kind of Christian community at this place and this time. I, I think photographs are the second best thing to being there. Um, speaking of Tom Wright, he and Mike Bird, as you know, yeah, put together this wonderful New Testament intro, which is full of graphics and pictures. And I, I'm very happy that they did it that way. Yeah, I've, I've got a copy in trying to trying to pin down Mike Bird because he lives down here in Melbourne right. as well. Um, he's a he's a, sometimes an elusive man, but um, he's probably very in very high demand, I, I suspect. <laughs> but um, so the other thing I wanted to, to kind of talk to you about, and this comes out of that, is the reality for John's audience, where, you know, some, some um, have speculated, I think we, we 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 move back and forth on this a little. I think scholarship, um, the reality of persecution, yeah, for um, the audience within uh, Revelation, um, and living under imperial rule, regardless, I think is a is a constant for them. What do you what do you make of that in relation to the people who are reading that today? Well, you know, because for many of us, we don't live under. Well, I don't know. You know, maybe we do live under an oppressive empire. Um, what do you think? Yeah, that's a really important question with multiple dimensions to it. The, the, the first thing I would say is there are people, uh, well, let me, let me back up. I don't think book, the book of Revelation was written primarily to persecuted Christians. I think there are obviously some people who have mar been martyred, like Antipas, the only named martyr, but others. But I, I don't think the primary interest in the, in the revelation is um, addressing a situation of persecution, but calling people to what Charles Talbert, Charles Talbert calls first commandment faith faithfulness so that they will be um, avoiding the kinds of idolatry and other practices related to that that would put them in sync with the culture. So the result is the likelihood of persecution is a result of that uh, um, uh, call to faithfulness. So I think that's the dynamic of, of Revelation, but it varies. I mean, even if we, as we read the seven churches, we see some that are completely faithful and some that are just about faithless, like Laodicea famously. So I think for Western cultures, and I would include Australia and New Zealand in that for the, for the sake of argument, those influenced by European colonial powers or whatever and, and have gotten way beyond colonialism, our, our temptation might be more like the temptation to, to give in to the culture in order to avoid any kind of conflict and therefore we're less sensitive to economic injustice, we're less sensitive to the idolatry of imperialism and nationalism. I speak for our, our own context, I mean as you can probably guess, we're facing very serious, what I would call nationalistic and quasi-imperial tendencies in our own government here. And, and we have an election coming up in 
11 days, I guess it is. So uh, Walter Brueggemann once referred to the Western empire, so to speak, as a kind of a trinity of, materi of, of materialism, militarism, and nationalism. And I think we see those in the book of Revelation. Uh, we see powerful figures engaging in promoting the worship, if you will, of, of the empire and the emperor. We see economic injustice, um, the trading of slaves and all the other things that are mentioned in that social, social gospel um, section that Bruce Mesker talked about. And uh, as I argue in, in some of the things that you've read that your audience probably haven't even heard of, uh, I, I do think Revelation opposes the the Pax Romana's way of, of bringing Pax through through military might. Um, so that that mindset and that cultural situation, I think, have a lot to say to us who are in the West. On the other hand, there are plenty of places in the world where Christians actually are persecuted, and the Book of Revelation has something to say to them. That's a that's a very nuanced. <laughs> Um, reading, which, which I really appreciate, um, because I think one of the difficulties has been that Revelation, as you have just said, it does say different things to different people. So, so being able to draw those things out for individuals, I think, is, is challenging um, because, you know, all our con contexts are so removed from one another. Yeah, and that's what makes that book and those messages such a universal text because the dispensationalist approach to revelation ends with the contemporary they would call liberal which they mean i think they mean basically non-dispensationalist church being the church of laodicea the church that jesus wants to vomit interestingly others who are not dispensationalist would also say that the, the best depiction of the Western church at the moment in the book of Revelation is the church at Laodicea, including the Canadian um, scholar, Harry, I'll have to think of his last name. I, maybe you remember it. I'm, I'm Harry Meyer. Meyer, thank you. Harry Meyer uh, makes the same argument about the book of Revelation saying that this church of Laodicea, that's the Western church. He's about as anti-dispensationalist as one, as one can get, but he comes to a similar conclusion. Uh, so that's I, I just find that kind of fascinating. Yeah, um, well, this will probably reveal a little bit more about me, but I, uh, Harry was one of the my um, doctoral thesis examiners. Ah, okay. That we, we invited, so that probably gives you a little bit of a hint as to yeah as to where I may sit with that. Um, let me let me cycle back to something and and ask you. So one, one of the words that comes to mind when you're talking about um, what we've been discussing is sovereignty. And it strikes me that there is a, an interesting clash then between acknowledging the sovereignty of God over against the sovereignty of nation states, empires, and even individuals. Um, care to comment on that? Sovereignty is one of those words that I find Christians use perhaps too often and with indistinct unclear definitions so mm -hmm. i guess the first thing i want to do is is talk about what that term means and that that could take us far afield what i what i think it it does mean in in the narrow sense is 
that the, the one of the key themes of scripture is the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is always going to stand in some opposition to the, the kingdom of man, to, to use sort of an Augustinian phrase. So um, to human kingdoms, empires and whatever. So when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, it seems to me that that is pretty much summing up the, um, the message of the New Testament, perhaps even the message of, of scripture more generally, so that we, we need to, to prioritize that in a way that means that, yes, we can be Australian citizens, we can be US citizens or whatever, but those citizenships are of such, frankly, minimal importance uh, compared to our citizenship in the kingdom of God and our, and, our, and our brotherhood and sisterhood in the church. One of the things that really attracts me about the book of Revelation is this, this view of a multi-ethnic church, both triumphant and, and suffering or, or still on earth from every tribe and every nation. And that, that to me is just deals the death blow to any form of nationalism or ethnocentrism and uh, I just wish American Christians would read Revelation and see that, especially right now in our hyper-nationalistic environment. Yeah, it's, it's um, we're, we're praying for you. <laughs> well, we're praying for ourselves, of course. Uh, we, we all have problems, but it, sure. yeah, I, I can't imagine what it's like um, at the moment. Um, that actually brings me on to the next thing I wanted to, to sure. briefly talk to you about as we start bringing this plane in for a landing, uh -huh. uh, as my friend Chris Thomas keeps saying. You, you've done some work on peace mm -hmm. in Revelation, um, and of course that seems on the surface of it like a, a very fantastically <laughs> uh, a concept that is, you know, just a bit contradictory with the book of Revelation. Um, so, when, but, but when you read Revelation, you see peace. Right. I think that the book of Revelation is actually a ultimate, and ultimately a peaceful document. By that, I mean, it, as it concludes the canon, it's predicting, if I can put that in scare quotes, it's envisioning um, a world that is the embodiment of the scriptural notion of shalom. People in right relationship with one another, with God and with the good creation. And uh, relationships have to mature. So those relationships are developing. The nations are still being healed, as I mentioned earlier. But, but there's this beautiful picture of, of shalom. And how do we get there? So on a literal reading of the book of Revelation, one assumes that we get there by violent battles and by judgments that tear up the earth and the sea and throw people into lakes of fire and so forth and so on. But if those images are symbolic of a deeper theological reality that, uh, and, and I think the way I've put it in a couple of pieces that I've written, that, that God is, it's, Revelation is depicting God's undoing of the evil that we have created. Is God actually going to do let's say, a literal war to end evil. I think that that's projecting onto God how humans envision. Um, so, so it's symbolic that 
that if God, and I, I've said this in several places, but I think I say it in the book, if God can speak creation into existence, the word of God can also unspeak evil or speak evil out of existence. So these are not depictions, but symbols of the end of evil. And, and so in that re respect, throughout scripture, shalom can't happen until evil, until evil is dealt with. So that's what I see happening in the book of Revelation. That's a, not a prediction or a depiction, but a symbolic interpretation of this very important thing that God is going to do in order to bring about the peace that uh, the Lamb of, of Revelation 5 uh, died to, to inaugurate. Um, that would that would take more unpacking to to justify all those answers, but that's my basic my basic perspective. Yeah, no, no, that's fair. Um, it is difficult though, isn't it? Because there there is a um, hiddenness to an extent with with the symbolism, or, or you know, uh, uh, well, there needs to be an unveiling. Right. To, if if I could be a bit clever about it. Yeah, I think I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said. Revelation needs a revelation to interpret it. Yeah, explain it. Well, that, that's true. And I, I guess one of the things I like to do in my own work when possible is to demonstrate that peace and shalom are present throughout the, the biblical canon, even when it's not so apparent. Revelation is the toughest sell on that. I will, I'll be the first to admit but I'm working on a paper right now on, on Paul as peacemaker in Galatians, which is kind of funny. Anybody who's read Galatians knows that the first thing Paul says is, you know, stuff like you stupid or foolish Galatians. Uh, and uh, does a lot of name calling, but ultimately I think Paul in, in that letter is actually trying to create um, the unity. That's the, the, the Shalom uh, that, that God promises to bring about in, in the people of God. So, yeah, I suppose this goes back to, to my experience of being in Turkey now about 10 different times and in, in Rome a few times. In Rome, there's the famous altar uh, the, to Augustan peace that almost nobody sees or knows about. But it's a really interesting altar built in, a, I think, about 9 BC or BCE. And um, it depicts plenty of fruit and vegetables and, and you know, all these wonderful things that you would want in, in a period of peace. But they're all depicted as the result of the depictions of Roman conquest with boots on people's necks and depictions of warfare and so forth. So there's this image and, and one might argue that Paul, I'm sorry, that revelation that John is just taking those images and, and transferring them onto God or onto the Messiah or whatever. And I think actually what he's doing is subverting them and saying, we can use those same images to talk about a different kind of peacemaking because yes, but evil has to be subdued, but it's not subdued in that literal way. It's subdued by the death and resurrection of, of, the, uh, of the lamb. And I think you make a comment to to the effect that the the human followers of Jesus do not undertake violent actions in Correct. the Revelation. Right, exactly. And I think that's very, very important. 
especially in light of some of the books uh, on Revelation that talk about literal warfare and Christians taking up arms and Jesus getting a band of soldiers together with Uzis and all this. Um, yeah, yeah. So we in the United States right now are, many of us are very concerned, uh, Christian leaders, about the imagery of the book of Revelation impacting far right um, militaristic vigilante type groups. And so th these are real concerns for us right now. So we appreciate your prayers. Yeah. And, you know, to we, we have run out of time, but I think that's a, an interesting note for us to end on the, the, the idea that people still take this really well, people take Revelation seriously. They do. And so there's a, a real need for us to to be able to propagate healthy responsible <laughs> readings of it wherever we can yes and i'm i'm so glad that you and others uh are, are doing that and i appreciate the opportunity to talk about my efforts well that, that seems like a good good spot to end on so thank you so much professor michael gowen we've really appreciated having you thank you